Welcome to Concordia Journal's Currents. I'm Dr. Rick Mars, uh, Associate Professor of Practical Theology here at Concordia Seminary and formerly a parish pastor until about two and a half years ago uh, in Kansas. Uh, with me is Ted Coburn, the President of Ambassadors of Reconciliation. And we're going to be talking about governance issues within congregations. Uh, Ted has been the President of Ambassadors for five, six years now. Mm -hmm and uh, formerly had been uh, uh, one of the directors with Peacemakers, also in Billings, Montana, for years years before that. So he has consulted with literally thousands of church leaders and hundreds, trained thousands of church leaders in various uh, techniques and strategies for uh, um, the reconciliation, peacemaking, and, and forgiveness among Christians. And he has uh, consulted with hundreds of congregations on those issues as well. So welcome, Ted. Very good to have you with us here. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, well, tell me, uh, governance of congregations, I mean, you're in reconciliation. What should governance have to do with reconciliation issues among Christians? Conflict can be caused by a number of different things. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that causes conflict are disagreements, misunderstandings, and those often are the result of structural or organizational issues. Mm -hmm. And so often when we're dealing with um, congregations or other organizations that have uh, leadership boards or groups, they have uh, organizational structures which contribute to the conflict or at least uh, uh, make it more difficult to work through issues. So while we work on heart issues, uh, what people do with personal issues, we sometimes always uh, also have to deal with structural issues. And that's why at different times we talk about governance. Okay. Well, tell us, what's your background in, in this? Why should somebody kind of consider you some authority to listen to? My background is in business prior to my work in reconciliation work. And uh, I was at some sort of management or governance level in more than 40 different organizations including for-profit for companies, uh, corporations, partnerships, uh, non-profit organizations that were not churches, uh, government agencies for which I was asked to chair or do some sort of governance issues with, and uh, church groups as well. And so I've served in a number of these different roles. And uh, often I've been called on to, to assist in, in helping a, an organization with its governance structure. And um, so I have often assisted in, in uh, either changing or writing bylaws, uh, policy manuals, uh, governance systems, uh, in, in all of these different kinds of organizations. Um, so what are some of the typical ways that congregations are governed, structured? Um, how do those help? Congregations can be structured in any number of different ways. and. Um, we find that Lutheran congregations have quite a wide array of the way that they're governed. Um, but they're often shaped by cultural things, the things that they've done in the past, mm -hmm. as well as their theology or their practice. And so as we've worked with uh, Lutheran churches in the United States, for example, we find that they're structured a little bit differently than ones you might find in, in India or in Africa or in South America. Most of the churches that we're dealing with in governance issue, issues uh, are primarily in uh, North America, the United States, and Canada. 
but we've also worked on some internationally as well. And what's the most kind of traditional way that churches are organized? Many of our uh, Lutheran churches in the Missouri Synod are, are or were at one time organized around a system of having anywhere from six to ten different administrative boards. Mm -hmm. Things like uh, a board of elders, a board of lay ministry, they were called a board of parish properties, a board of trustees, uh, a board of Christian education, evangelism, stewardship, youth, uh, public relations, fellowship, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Then the chairman of those boards often served on what was called a planning council, parish planning council, church council, something like that. Uh, oftentimes, those councils didn't have uh, a great deal of direct uh, governance uh, authority, uh, but everything was finally decided by a voters assembly or congregational meeting. The parish planning council typically was intended to coordinate the work of the various different boards. So what were the advantages, what are the advantages and disadvantages of that traditional kind of governance? Um, some of the advantages include the fact that many people could be involved in ministry in the church. Prior to the development of that kind of system, uh, churches weren't well organized to involve a number of different people in different aspects of ministry. So it did tend to involve more people. Also, uh, congregational meetings or voters meetings used to handle all sorts of details, mm -hmm. which under uh, this revised system delegated some of the responsibility to the individual boards. Um, the original concept of a parish planning council was good in the sense that Sometimes in congregations that had lots of boards or committees, they didn't coordinate work very well. And when this system operates well, people tend to have uh, a better way to bring things together to coordinate. Um, but as with every kind of government system, there were also a number of disadvantages. Uh, oftentimes, the, the boards, instead of organizing the work and involving more people, saw that they were the ones that should do all of the work. So for example, a board of trustees or parish properties would come together as a board and they would do the various repairs or maintenance work throughout the church instead of organizing it to help other people do it. Uh, another disadvantage is when you had a number of different boards like that, uh, you often had some of the boards that didn't work very well at all. Uh, some of them didn't uh, meet regularly, they didn't do any planning, uh, they weren't sure what their, what their role was. And so you might have a number of, of different boards that just weren't operating very well. Uh, another disadvantage is as churches grew and had more professional staff, the professional staff often felt restricted because in order for them to make decisions and actions, take actions in ministry, they had to get approval through the board and then it eventually had to go to the parish planning council and to some sort of voters meeting. And they often had to wait till people met and there were lots of input, and uh, people didn't always make good informed decisions, and so it tended to restricted staff from doing things that they were trained and equipped to do. Uh, another disadvantage is because of the way the system was set up, boards were required to meet on a regular basis, usually monthly. But if they didn't have a good plan, didn't have a good chairman that was directing them, and if they didn't have good training in what they were to do, they often met uh, and didn't accomplish anything. They knew they were supposed to meet, they'd talk about things in general, but they wouldn't have specific goals, they wouldn't have written out agendas, they wouldn't have plans for the year, they wouldn't understand what their responsibilities were, and uh, they became very ineffective. 
And after a while, people that wanted to be effective in ministry, attending these meetings became discouraged mm -hmm. because they didn't really do anything that was meaningful. Uh, they were taking a lot of time. And uh, so it was difficult, uh, becoming increasingly more difficult for people to, uh, to find people to fill open positions on boards. Mm -hmm. And so those are some of the frustrations and disadvantages of that kind of system. Yeah, yeah, and like you said in that one, uh, sometimes the people would want to be doers rather than actually leading other people in the congregation to do things. I know at my congregation we had trustees who uh, were wonderful doer sort of guys, but we told them we don't want you to be all the do all the doing. Uh, we don't want you to do all the fixing of the of the congregation. We want the uh, want you to call other people and help get them in to help you fix these things. And they didn't want to get on the telephone, so we actually put a woman who was partially disabled on the board of trustees just because she could be the phone caller to make sure that all the other people were called. So uh, yeah, trying to get people involved in broader ways is, is rather difficult. So. Uh, that's the more traditional model. Uh, there are now other congregations that have gone to a different model or different models. Uh, what is that? I mean, policy-based governance, I know is what, where you're going and where the, the paper that you've written uh, that'll be available on uh, Concordia Journal Currents as well with this with this interview. Uh, what are the advantages and why are congregations sometimes moving to the policy-based governance? First of all, let me start with a, a, a more general description of policy-based governance and why more than churches are looking at it as, as a way to um, help their organization run more effectively. In policy-based governance, the philosophy is to separate the governance issue from the management. Uh, very often in, in any kind of organization where you have some sort of board of directors, uh, people that come onto that board uh, feel a responsibility and have a desire to help the organization run well, and they come at it from a management perspective. Uh, often people that fill those positions have management experience, and they're used to making decisions on a day-to-day -day basis to operate an organization. And so you have management people coming together on a board to try to make management decisions when they're not directly involved with the day-to-day -day business. Mm -hmm. Governance separates part of the management out. That part of the management that is most responsible for casting overall vision, setting general policy, and then recruiting and selecting one person that is a chief executive officer of the whole organization that then is responsible for delegating and managing the rest of the organization. And so in the corporate world, uh, this works quite well. So for example, in a, a corporation, a public corporation where you have a large number of shareholders, obviously they're not capable of either managing or governing, but they elect the people uh, that serve on their board of directors. That board doesn't manage the organization day to day, but they make decisions which then give direction to the main uh, mission of the organization and who the chief executive officer is. Then that chief executive officer is responsible for uh, achieving the mission uh, within any limitations that the board sets for it and uh, is accountable to the board of directors for the results of the organization. And so governance separates those two functions into two different areas. Mm -hmm. The idea is, is to prevent 
boards of directors from micromanaging and getting involved in day-to-day -day decisions and helping them stay to look at the big picture and look at what is the final outcome that they want. Um, a number of different um, professionals over the years have said, how can we develop this for nonprofit and government type organizations? Uh, and what are some of the differences between profit-making entities and uh, nonprofit or charitable organizations? And one of the major differences is in profit-making entities, one of the ways in which success is measured is by profit. Mm -hmm. And so uh, corporations uh, retain or terminate CEOs on the basis of whether they can make the company profitable mm -hmm. or not. And there's lots of different ways to define that, define that in terms of long-term, short-term, value of the company, and so on and so forth. But in, in nonprofit, charitable, and, and governmental agencies, um, profit is not a major indicator. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's value received uh, by having this entity in existence. And so uh, this philosophy of policy-based governance has been adapted to these kinds of organizations to help them become more effective. Essentially what it does is has the board of directors define um, what is the overall vision of the organization and they act as the legal trustees of the organization on behalf of the community at large. And uh, they recruit and select the chief operating director, chief executive officer, the president of the organization, who's then responsible for putting the day-to-day -day management in practice and hold them accountable to that. Uh, and I've assisted uh, a number of nonprofit organizations in developing that kind of system. Uh, that were not congregations. Uh, some are church-related, some are government-related, some are, are non-church, non-government-related, and it works very well. It also works well in for-profit corporations. Um, and um, then some aspects of that have begun to be adapted uh, and used by churches. That was really the basic question that you asked me. So some churches have begun to look to, to organizations like this saying they've been able to overcome some of these micromanagement issues, they've been able to overcome some of the issues of having effective boards and committees, why can't we adopt this system for the church? And so more than just Lutheran churches, many churches have begun to adopt policy-based governance as a way to uh, separate the governance and management of a church or a church-related entity. So there are advantages to that, you think, over the traditional model of having eight different boards? There are some advantages of it. Uh, and some of the, the design advantages that work in a corporation or a, uh, uh, another nonprofit separate from a church, many of those benefits carry over to church work as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it helps uh, people that are on, organi uh, on government boards, governing boards, separate the governance issues from the management issues. It frees up staff to uh, make decisions and to um, uh, oversee the operation of the ministry in a way that uh, is not encumbered by people that aren't involved in the day-to-day -day ministry. It, uh, it also eliminates unnecessary meetings of boards. And the idea is, is that this board of directors still involves a number of people rather than involving them in board meetings, 
they involve them on special projects or, or, or special assignments. Um, and especially in our world where people are very busy, um, where you have uh, couples where both are working outside of the home, um, or even in retired couples where they're very busy, people are looking for shorter term uh, commitments. So it tends to take advantage of that as well. I know I was involved in a consultation a year or more ago where uh, a church had been thousands of members decades ago, and now that it was very, very small, and they literally, having the traditional model, didn't have enough adult members to fill all of the different board positions that needed to be filled. So they were searching for how can we reach out to the community and not just spend all of our time in board, board meetings, uh, and they were then considering it for a recommendation to go to something. But you also point out that there are some disadvantages then, some concerns that you have about just applying this kind of business or nonprofit model onto church and spiritual issues. Yes, and we've seen that lived out in a number of cases where we've been asked to consult with churches that have conflict, mm -hmm. and that's where we've experienced a problem. And there, there's two issues that we have with adopting uh, policy-based governance on a congregational level. Um, without some modification. The first is, what makes policy-based governance work well is when a board of directors has the authority and responsibility to hire and fire the CEO. Mm -hmm. And that's really a critical part of policy-based governance because the board establishes the vision and then delegates everything to their their main staff member. Mm -hmm. And their only way of correcting issues other than monitoring and trying to work with the CEO is if he is unable to perform and meet their expectations, they terminate him. The, the corporation doesn't do it, the shareholders don't do it, others don't do it, the board does. In many non-Lutheran congregations, they're set up to do that where there's a board of directors where they have the authority to uh, make a decision on, on hiring the, the senior pastor uh, or, or the main pastor of the church and also releasing them. In our Lutheran churches, it's not that way. Mm -hmm. uh, because of our, our um, uh, theology and practice of the divine call, we believe that calls need to be issued from the congregation at large. And we also believe that if there needs to be a release of that call uh, and the congregation needs to take action, the, the entire congregation or the voting membership of that congregation makes that decision. So the board of directors does not have the authority to hire or to terminate the senior pastor of a church. And so that creates some of the conflict in such a situation. Uh, the second issue that we have with it is that when a senior pastor takes on this role, he now assumes responsibility for far more than the, the, the preaching and teaching, the administration of the sacraments and the spiritual care of members. Yeah. He now assumes responsibility for things for which pastors are not typically trained for mm -hmm. and not specifically called for. That is, they're responsible for the financial management and oversight of the organization for the human resource policies, for uh, the legal issues that might arise, uh, and, and for 
every aspect of the management of property and risk management. Um, and um, theoretically, a pastor should be able to execute that by employing gifted people in those areas. Uh, but what we find in churches, in, in actual cases that we work with, is senior pastors that are responsible for those kinds of decisions are not always trained and equipped to identify gifts that are needed for those because it's not in their background, it's not in their experience. The other difficulty with it is that if a pastor is going to be involved with all these different aspects, it takes away from the time that he has to devote on the spiritual functions of, of a pastor. Um, typically, these pastors uh, do spend a, a good deal of time preaching and do a great job there. Uh, teaching is somewhat limited because they have these other administrative duties. But in terms of the spiritual care issues, those are all delegated out. Mm -hmm. And what we have found in practice is that many of those pastors spend time pouring over financial reports, looking at building programs, uh, look at uh, uh, risk management or human resource policies, and their attention is taken away from the primary uh, responsibilities in the call document and in what many people believe is, is a major responsibility for a pastor. Mm -hmm. Having said that, uh, large churches do call for more administration. There's no question about it. Um, but we question the wisdom of having one pastor uh, as responsible for all of those kinds of areas. Mm -hmm. So those are our two primary concerns for adopting this kind of a governance system within Lutheran congregations. Yeah, and that's a special concern for me. I teach in the area of pastoral care and counseling, and I actually teach students. And even if they do get sent to a large congregation, even if they do become a, a senior pastor of the large congregation, I still hope that they will go out and do some amount of that pastoral care, you know, visiting people in their homes, visiting people in their hospital, uh, hospital rooms, even though they won't be able to do all of it if they've got thousands of people in their congregation. But if they're not doing any of it, you know, what kind of message does that send to the, to the rest of the congregation and the leaders? So. Well, so do you have some suggestions for people or congregations who are considering this kind of policy-based governance and some advantage? Because you did say there were advantages. Mm -hmm. What are some things that they could do to modify this, in your opinion, to help it work for congregations? One of the things that we think is important in a congregation is to separate uh, as much as possible uh, the, the spiritual functions of the ministry for the church from the uh, more material issues or social ministry issues. And for that, I'd like to uh, turn to Acts chapter 6, if I might, sure. and, and uh, talk a little bit about what, what kinds of problems the early church dealt with. As you know, the scriptures do not mandate how a church should be organized, how it should be governed, how the, uh, it doesn't talk about things like bylaws and constitutions like we do in our society. Governance is adiaphora. Right. So I want to be careful by saying that the Bible doesn't say exactly how we should do this. But I think there's some real wisdom and, and some struggles that the early church had that are structure related and how they dealt with it. And then I'd like to talk about how I think that applies. Chapter 6? Yes. Uh, the first several verses. 
This was a point, a time in the early Christian church when it was experiencing a lot of growth and had become uh, a large church, right. even by our definition 3,000 yes. baptized in one day. And so we're going to pick it up at the beginning of, of Acts chapter 6 when we learn that there was a dispute that arose. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So you had a situation where you had two different groups that were from different backgrounds mm -hmm. and were complaining that there was some uh, lack of fairness in the way the food was being distributed. Part of the social ministry at the church at that time. So the 12, that is the 12 apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. Then it indicates those that they chose for these responsibilities. So what the apostles were saying was, um, rather than us focusing our time on overseeing this particular function of, of the business of the church, which is important, we suggest that you take spiritual lay leaders, uh, identify them, and appoint them to do that, and that way we can focus on what the scriptures call the ministry of the word. Then later it says in verse seven, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So by doing this, they were able to meet their needs, and the church continued to, to thrive as the spirit moved among the people. Here's what I learned from that, that those that are called to be pastors, if they focus on the ministry of the word and find gifted people to deal with some of the uh, material issues, dealing with, with the function of the, the church as, as an organization or the social ministries, uh, that together they can govern and administrate the church so that it will grow mm -hmm. and not be hampered by the way the church is organized. So what we propose is kind of a modification uh, from policy-based governance for churches to, to meet this, this kind of objective. Uh, first of all, we believe there should be more than one type of main lay leadership governing board. We believe that there should be something like a board of directors or a church council, but that their primary functions ought to be those that deal with legal issues, financial issues, and social ministry functions. That there be a second board a board of elders, a board of young ministry that, that is primarily responsible for, for the spiritual life of the church as a traditional board of elders uh, was in the past. And that they work together with uh, the senior pastor and the pastors to make sure that uh, uh, worship life uh, is, is being done effectively but also faithfully to the scriptures and in our Lutheran churches uh, to the Lutheran confessions that uh, they oversee the, the care of the pastors, not just for their salaries, uh, but also for their spiritual care, who's ministering to their pastor, and that they have make general 
uh, governance decisions regarding the teaching of the church and the administration of the sacraments and the uh, uh, ministry uh, to, to people who need pastoral care. Now they don't execute the day-to-day -day work of that, but the senior pastor together with other people on the staff do that. For the, going back to the uh, uh, board of directors, they would have a, an employee accountable to them who would be an administrator or an executive director, uh, but would not be a called pastor usually, uh, would be somebody that would be employed, that would have expertise in these different kinds of business administration details. Mm -hmm. And that the senior pastor then would be the uh, executive person, if you will, that would be responsible for all spiritual care issues. So he would oversee all education functions uh, of the church or the school if they have one, uh, all of the uh, uh, preaching, uh, all of the administration of the sacraments, and pastoral care. So what sort of suggestions would you make to congregations that are thinking about making this switch? Um, where should they seek out some help to know if this would be a better model for them to take on than other models? Well, first of all, we think it's helpful for an organization to, to identify what is not working about their current structure. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we, we try to fix things that don't need fixing. Or we fix the wrong things because we don't understand what's wrong. And while structure is important, uh, it is not what always contributes to conflict. And so sometimes we look to bringing peace and harmony to our organization and say, well, if we only had a better structure, or if we only had better policies, or if we only had a new way of doing business, everything would operate smoothly. And uh, we do realize that the structure can contribute to conflict and create conflict, but it's not the only thing. Uh, we also need to look at what's going on in the heart. And are people doing more than trying to solve conflict or resolve conflict, are they also reconciling relationships? So they need to look at that, first of all, and identify what are the issues that are contributing to their conflicts before they decide on a solution. Um, in the children of Israel, they complained to God that if they just had a better structure, a, a different leadership system, yeah. uh, so they went from prophets to judges to kings, that would solve all their problems. And God even warned them when they wanted kings, saying, you're not going to like kings. And he said, but look, all these kingdoms around us are kings, right. and they're operating so well. And then the kingdom divided under kings. Yeah. And you see, it was the people's heart that didn't change. It's their hearts that didn't change. And uh, until you deal with heart issues, uh, no structure Will, will take care of those kinds of conflicts. Um, at the same time, there are things that, that can be improved. So the first thing I would say is identify what is causing the difficulty, what are the problems you're trying to solve, and then secondly, what's the best way to organize to do that? The larger a church gets, the more it can benefit from some of the basic principles of policy-based management. But the smaller a church, uh, is still better off organizing in some of the more traditional ways because they need to work together as an entire body on more things. So size also makes a difference. Well, is there anything else that you think would be important for people to know other than make the suggestion that they read your uh, paper that uh, you know, is on Concordia Journal Currents? Um, anything else that's important for them to understand as they make these kind of considerations? 
There's one other area that we've seen as a disadvantage in a policy-based governance if it's adopted in a way that just has one major governing board. And that is a lack of spiritual care for the leaders of the church. And mm -hmm. um, thinking through this carefully, at the moment I cannot think of any church that's adopted this system that has not suffered in this particular area to some degree. Let me explain what I'm talking about. One church where we were working, they, they had developed this particular system. They had uh, a, a multi-million dollar operation in terms of organization. Lots of ministry going on with, with a school from very young grades up through high school. Mm -hmm. uh, they had uh, a retirement center. They were doing some real estate development. Uh, it was a very large system. And they had this kind of an organization where they had a board of directors that had all the governing authority in the church delegated to the senior pastor. They did have a board of elders, but they weren't elected, they were appointed by the pastor. And if they began to work with the pastor on some spiritual issues they had for him, uh, he simply um, unappointed them. Mm -hmm. And so they were no longer a force. In the bylaws and in the policies, it indicated that the board of directors had responsibility for the care of their pastors, including spiritual care and oversight. Mm -hmm. But in reality, this church uh, had so much going in terms of construction projects, uh, size, school administration, everything else, the board had no time for Bible study, mm -hmm. no time for prayer uh, for their members and for each other, mm -hmm. and they spent no time providing spiritual care for their pastor. Their pastor became more and more consumed with, with the, the physical attributes of what was going on in the organization. And especially when they ran into some financial difficulties, which put a lot of pressure on the office. And there was no one that was providing pastoral care for the pastor. What happened then, he tended to lean more and more on his own strength. His, his own devotion life suffered. And it began to affect his preaching. He didn't have time for, for uh, providing pastoral care for members, even for the leaders of his church, uh, for Renata or for staff, and it contributed to all kinds of, of difficulties, which eventually resulted in his leaving the organization. Mm. Um, and we have seen that happen over and over again. Now, not every board of elders in a traditional format carries out this responsibility well either, so I don't want to say that having a board of elders cures all right. that. But we have seen that where a board of elders is elected by the people, and they take seriously their responsibility for the spiritual life of the congregation, uh, they do several things that a board of directors simply does not have time to do. Number one, uh, they study scripture together. And they do it under the pastor, but also with the pastor. Each of the different elders takes responsibility for doing some of their own study and bringing it to the board. They pray together and take time to pray together. And they pray for one another on the board and they pray for their pastor in his presence. They also care for him and his family, taking time to um, do an annual evaluation that doesn't look just at the performance of the church in terms of numbers or, or uh, those kinds of things, but ask about his devotional life, about his family life, about how he's doing spiritually, whether he's getting continuing education, 
And they have time to invest in that because they're not focused on the finances primarily. They're not focused on the um, uh, social ministries. They're not focused on the human resource policies, except as it overlaps in the spiritual life of the congregation. And so they are able to provide support and minister to the pastor when he ministers. And that, we believe, provides a much healthier environment uh, for a church structurally to function. Well, thank you very much. I know we here at Concordia Seminary spend a lot of time training pastors to be pastors, and we don't train them very much to be CEOs. They don't get a lot of coursework on anything like that. There's a course on pastoral leadership that kind of explores a wide variety of these different things, but uh, no, this has been helpful, and I hope it's helpful to our uh, listeners and watchers of, of this. And hopefully they can read your paper, and, and then if they have other questions, obviously can be in contact with you for some guidance for, for their congregations. So, thank you very much. You bet. Thanks for having me.